If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, as we continue our study in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And as you get your Bible and turn there, I want to ask you if these words sound familiar to you. We have come together today at the invitation of the bride and groom and in the presence of God to share in the joy of their wedding. This sacred relationship of marriage was established by God from the very beginning, blessed by Jesus, by his presence at the wedding in Cana, and honored by Paul as he uses it to symbolize the union between Christ and his church. The union of marriage is intended by God for their mutual joy and the help and comfort given to one another in prosperity and adversity. For the raising up of children in the knowledge and love of the Lord, it is not to be entered into lightly, but with great thought and in reverent fear before God. Such is how many uh, marriage ceremonies begin. And other than the kiss, they often end with these words of Jesus. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, we enter into the, the third illustration and instruction of Jesus regarding his announcement in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, that he had come to fulfill the law, and in that his, his call for all of his followers to seek a kingdom righteousness that was greater and was deeper than the Pharisees. On the surface, we're, we're met here with what initially we would want to call Jesus's teaching on divorce. But to focus on the issue of divorce is actually to let the Pharisees lead the discussion. Jesus certainly does speak about divorce here, but more importantly, we hear what Jesus thinks about marriage. And he says to us, don't let your hard heart weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of marriage. Don't let your hard heart weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of marriage. Marriage is a complicated thing, and so too, therefore, is divorce. Uh, for all of the joy that marriage can bring, it also brings some of the deepest heartache into people's lives. And so too, divorce touches people's lives deeply. The dissolving of a marriage covenant has the the, a deep effect on, on the couple itself, but it also has ripple effects out to the, the children of divorce, to extended family, to friends and other relationships, and even to society at large and culture at large. Divorce is, is the death of a relationship and the severing of a union that had been founded on love. And the grief that's connected to that is, is much like any other death. I imagine that we've all been touched by the pain of divorce in small and in large ways. We've, we've seen and we've felt all of the, the deep emotion that it brings into our lives. And in the midst of the, the heartache and the pain of divorce, it could seem very heartless to step in and to smugly announce that God hates divorce and that Jesus says divorce is wrong. And so I pray that you don't hear any of that kind of smugness today. I hope that you know the, the grace and the forgiveness of God that's found in Christ for all who, who fall and who fail and who are affected by the brokenness of this world. I hope that you feel the grace that we as a church desire to extend to one another. But I ho also hope that, that we can together 
see that it's it's good to look into God's word and it's good to see the goodness of the law, to see that that God's commands and his design of the world are best and they lead to our greatest joy and to the flourishing of all humanity. It's good to hear Jesus sternly and lovingly warn us, don't let your hard heart weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of marriage. Could this teaching on divorce then be a reminder of the difficulty, but also of the goodness of of marriage? Could we take our time here in these these verses and on this, this very difficult issue as an opportunity to see the goodness of God's law and to commit ourselves to keeping his laws while while we're now removed from maybe emotionally charged situations where we might find ourselves facing this kind of an issue? Could could Jesus' clear teaching here be a a catalyst even towards worship, a time to see that, that God is forever faithful to us, we who have often been so unfaithful to him? May we strive to to not let our our hard hearts weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of marriage, but may may we also find ourselves rejoicing in the goodness of God's design in his world in general and of his design in marriage in particular. I want us to begin by, by reading Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, but I also want us to read Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. You'll remember that the pattern of these illustrations from Matthew chapter 5 is a statement of the law as it was understood by the the Pharisees. It usually, it always begins with these words, you have heard that it was said. Um, There's a slight variation here in this third one, but it's the same sort of pattern. And that's followed by Jesus's fuller explanation of of the heart of the stated law, which begins with the words, but I say to you. And, And then thirdly, there's some words of application that Jesus offers. This, this third example here in verses 31 and 32 is the shortest of the, the six illustrations. And that seems to, to be in part because Jesus gives a further explanation and application of these words in Matthew chapter 19. There, there's even some similar construction in, in Matthew chapter 19. And so it seems right to consider these two passages together. And so that's what we'll do. I want to begin by reading from Matthew chapter 5, these two verses, and then we'll flip over to Matthew 19 and read the first 12 uh, verses of that chapter. But Matthew 5, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. As we consider the, the teaching of Jesus, this, this command to not let our hard hearts weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of, of marriage, as we seek to rightly understand marriage through, through God's eyes and to walk in the righteousness of the kingdom, I want us to see first that self-righteousness focuses only on what is allowed. Self-righteousness focuses only on what is allowed. Behind these, these two passages, the Pharisees were asking, what is the minimum that I need to do to keep the law? I remember in high school and in college around this time of year, as the school year was coming to an end, that there were people who would, who would calculate the lowest grade that they could get on their final exam and still pass the class. So they would say things like, you know, I can get a D minus on the final and still get a B plus and pass this class. And in a similar way, the, the discussion around marriage and divorce from the, from the Pharisees was about what was allowed and what was, what was the least that needed to be done. What can I do and still be considered right, still be considered righteous? There was a heated debate amongst the, the Jewish teachers of, of Jesus's day with regard to marriage and divorce. And the, the focus of the debate was on determining what were the permissible grounds for a divorce. In many ways, actually, it was a question of interpretation. How do, they, how do we understand Deuteronomy 24? Deuteronomy 24 is the key Old Testament teaching on divorce. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Uh, and as I read this, you'll hear it's actually one really long sentence for most of the first four verses and then one final sentence. So it's a, it's a, it's a multifaceted um, logical argument, as it were. But hear these words, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Quite the um, the string of argument there. Um, a couple of rabbis sought to interpret this passage, and they focused specifically on what it means when it says that a man may write a certificate of divorce if he has found some indecency in his wife. What's meant by those words? some indecency. 
on the one hand, there were those that took a hard line and interpreted those words very strictly as some sort of indecent offense in marriage, most often saying that it simply means adultery. Uh, but on the other hand, there were those who took some indecency to mean anything that the husband presumed to say was dissatisfactory, even down to his wife's cooking or even to her looks. We hear that we hear this in the in the Pharisees' question. They're asking, "Is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason? Is that allowed, Jesus?" All all of this discussion is forming the background for Matthew five and Matthew nineteen. So that in asking that question in Matthew nineteen three, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus by forcing him to reveal where he stood on this divisive issue. Now, if you're wondering which side the of the issue most of the Pharisees landed on, would you be surprised if I told you that it was on the side that was easiest to follow? The, the one that most watered down the meaning of marriage. The one that allowed divorce for almost any reason and then tried to justify that position by saying that Moses made it clear that divorce was permissible as long as there was a written certificate. If you've been with us in this study, then you probably won't be surprised that that's where the Pharisees fell because we have seen with each of these illustrations that the application of the law by the Pharisees was often surface. It sought to water down or to change or even to ignore parts of the law so that they could continue to proclaim that they were righteous. Just as we're not surprised that that's how the Pharisees interpreted the law, we shouldn't be surprised that this is where our hearts and where our culture goes. Because under all of the weak interpretations of some indecency is the reality that relationships are hard and they're painful. And sometimes it feels like starting over is easier than seeking to heal the hurt that's there. Sometimes it feels easier to end things than to face our sinfulness and to face the ways that we feel like we will never change. Woundedness and pain and sinfulness and hurt and frustration can get so suffocating in a relationship that divorce feels like the only way that anyone will be able to breathe again. Our world is broken by sin, and so are we. And in seeking to appease our conscience and find some sense of righteousness, even some sense of relief, we try to focus on what is allowed. How can I get what I want and still be righteous? How can I deal with the difficulty that I'm feeling, but not do something wrong? How can I find some peace, but still have peace of mind and peace of heart and peace in my soul? Friends, these, these are hard questions. They are real life questions. And the Pharisees approach these questions by asking at best, what is allowed? At worst, they ask, how can I get what I want? but still be able to tell myself that I'm pleasing God with my actions. However, Jesus tells us that, that the way to answer these kinds of questions is not to focus simply on what is allowed. Rather, he tells us that kingdom righteousness focus on, focuses on what was originally intended. Kingdom righteousness focuses on what was originally intended. If self-righteousness focus on, focuses on what is allowed, then kingdom righteousness focuses on what God originally intended in marriage. The, the Pharisees were focused on Moses and the law as stated in Deuteronomy 24. In chapter 19, after Jesus answers in a way that they didn't expect, they, they countered with Moses and they said, with what Moses said about, about writing a certificate of divorce. And in chapter 5, verse 31, they turned the, the legal necessity 
of a written divorce certificate intended to protect the woman in a marriage, they turned that into a command that was to be followed. But Jesus not only reveals their distortion of Moses, he also goes deeper into the law, focusing on the foundations of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And in doing so, he aims it at our hearts and at the heart of the meaning of marriage. Because kingdom righteousness doesn't, doesn't focus simply on keeping rules. It's focused on walking in the ways of Jesus with our whole heart. Kingdom righteousness is not focused on how we can get by but on how we can glorify God and experience the joy he desires us to have. Kingdom righteousness is not focused on loopholes for divorce, but on exalting the beauty of marriage, even when it's hard. The Pharisees asked, what are the proper grounds for divorce? Jesus asked, what is the meaning of marriage? And from Genesis, he says that marriage is exclusive and it's permanent. Marriage is exclusive and it's permanent. Again, here's what he says in, in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is exclusive in that a man and a woman form a new union that is exclusive. It is limited to them and them only. And marriage is permanent. They leave their parents and they are joined together in a one flesh union. They are no longer two. They are one. And therefore, should they, they should never, and we might even say they cannot ultimately be separated. John Stott was helpful to me in thinking that through this idea of uh, that marriage is exclusive and permanent. And so his summary is also helpful. Here's what he writes. Marriage, according to our Lord's exposition of its origins, is a divine institution by which God makes permanently one two people who decisively and publicly leave their parents in order to form a new union of society and then become one flesh. Now, Here's the question. If marriage is exclusive and permanent, and that's what Jesus is trying to say, this is what marriage is. If marriage is exclusive and permanent, then why did Moses say what he said about divorce? Why is that an option? That, that's what the Pharisees want to know, and, and, and why they ask the question of, of chapter 19, verse 7. They, they skirt past the depth of what was just stated because they want to get an answer to their question. Why did Moses command that? Why did Moses command that we write a certificate of divorce? And Jesus gives them an answer. He says that it was because of the hardness of our hearts that divorce entered into the law. Divorce exists because marriage exists in a world that is broken by sin. Marriage is not always what God intended because the world it exists in, the world that marriage exists in, is not the way that God originally intended either. But it's a world that's filled with rebellion and with evil, even in our own hearts. Jesus is clear that the writing of a certificate of divorce, while instructed by God, was not a command of God as the Pharisees phrased it. It wasn't a command of God. Rather, it was a concession. It was an allowance by God despite what he wanted and despite what he originally intended. 
And Jesus is clear in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that the only time that that concession of divorce was allowed was on the grounds of sexual immorality. The word there translated sexual immorality is porneia, and it probably refers to a, a wide range of sexual unfaithfulness that breaks a marriage covenant. And if the meaning of marriage can be summarized as a, an exclusive and permanent union, then we can see how sexual unfaithfulness undercuts the foundation of a relationship that's supposed to be exclusive. It invites another person into the deepest part of a union that is only supposed to be between a husband and a wife. And so Jesus says that that kind of sexual immorality is the most solid grounds for a divorce. Of course, what this word porneia does not include are the many reasons that the Pharisees of Jesus's day and we in our day want to give for getting a divorce. We can find more instruction from Paul that would probably include abandonment by a spouse and possibly even include abuse as a grounds for divorce, for dissolving a marriage. But, but while there, there, there seem to be these grounds for divorce that are spelled out in Scripture, the list of justified reasons for separation are, are small. And even seeing this short list, we should be careful not to fall into the trap of the Pharisees. We should not see these things as, as ways to appease our consciences while still doing exactly what we want. In fact, the exceptions from Jesus here and the writing of a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy and the words of Paul as well are primarily focused not on giving reasons for, for getting a divorce, but they're focused on protecting the wife in a very hazardous situation. They're not there to approve divorce. They're there to protect people. These laws were meant to, kept a, to keep a husband from, from seeking a divorce with no thought of the consequences on himself or on his wife. It's, they were to emphasize what marriage was intended to be, that it's an exclusive, permanent covenant that should not be cast off without much thought. Jonathan Pennington explains this uh, even further. Here's what he says. It would be extremely difficult for a formerly married woman in first century Judaism to survive economically and socially without being married. Thus, the assumption is that most divorced women would get remarried. Hence, while initially Jesus' statement seems to put the burden unfairly on the woman, in fact, he is pushing the male perpetrator of an invalid divorce to realize that he is actually the cause of his former wife's adultery, not her, by virtue of forcing her into a remarriage situa situation when she was wrongly divorced. The teaching ends by also putting the emphasis squarely on the man's shoulders. Men should not presume that they are free to remarry either, for they too will commit adultery by remarrying such divorced women. This takes us right into another very sticky issue in our day that comes along with marriage and divorce, and that's remarriage. What about remarriage? In a teaching here that shocks even his disciples, Jesus, in line with Deuteronomy 24, says in Matthew 19:9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And in Matthew 5:31, he's just as clear. Everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The permanence of the marriage union, Jesus says, is not dissolved by a certificate of divorce, which means remarriage 
results in adultery. Now, there is debate here, especially concerning that exception clause. Uh, in other words, if marriage is dissolved because of sexual immorality or some other biblical grounds, is remarriage permitted? Some would say yes, and some would say no. Practically, what I want to say that is clear is that where you are is where you should stay. The situation that you're in is, is the situation that you are in in the present. And, and pastorally speaking, I would remind you that there is forgiveness and restoration in Christ for every sin, including adultery and divorce. Pastorally speaking, I'd also say, if you have further questions, this is something to have a conversation about. It's not something to preach the specifics on, and I'd invite that. Well, what's also clear here is that it's nearly impossible to have a higher view of marriage than God does. You cannot think more highly about marriage than God does and than Jesus does. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful to not let our hard hearts weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of marriage. We must begin where Jesus does, looking at a marriage from God's perspective. When we, when we brush, brush past the issue and say that anyone can marry anyone, and anyone can divorce anyone for any reason, and remarriage is always permissible, that, that's to consider marriage from a human-centered perspective. We must instead seek to hold in high regard marriage and what Jesus has said about it. And as we consider God's perspective on marriage, and Jesus' teaching on the righteousness of the kingdom, we're driven to humbly consider the interconnectedness and the intensity of the law. That's what I want us to do now. Humbly consider the interconnectedness and the intensity of the law. Humbly consider the interconnectedness and intensity of the law. The kids and I watched a, a video of an amazing Domino's creation the other day. Uh, the, the knocking down of that initial brick eventually lead to, led to um, the collapse of this tower of wood blocks that had to be at least 20 feet tall. The law can be like that. Failing in one point sets in motion failure in countless other areas. Think about the Pharisees. In seeking to apply Deuteronomy 24 by saying that God had commanded the writing of of a divorce certificate, and thereby allowing divorce for nearly any reason, they were condoning and even multiplying adultery amongst them. They were permitting people to break vows that they had made before God, which is what Jesus is going to address next in the Sermon on the Mount. And not only were they breaking Moses' law, but they were distorting the foundational relationship of society laid out by God from the very beginning. And in all of this, they, they were not loving God, and they were not loving their neighbor. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And even when we're deceiving ourselves, we're creating major issues. When we seek to justify our actions, when our focus is on self-righteousness and the seeking of loopholes, when we consider things from our perspective rather than from God's perspective, then we leave behind us a trail of destruction. But when we humbly consider the interconnectedness and the intensity of the law, we will not pridefully seek loopholes to prop up our own self-righteousness. Rather, we will humbly repent. We will see that no amount of law-keeping can save us because the smallest amount of law-breaking dooms us. 
As James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. From, from that perspective, we'll be driven to Jesus. We'll be driven to Jesus who never failed to keep any part of the law, but fulfilled it all. We'll be driven to God who has remind us, who, who has remained faithful to us, even when we have been unfaithful to him. Our hope of salvation and redemption and forgiveness is in Jesus, the only righteous one, and in a Father who is faithful to us and who has sent his Son to save us. Jesus not only lived a life of righteousness, but he died for our unrighteousness. He took the penalty of death that we deserve so that when we turn from our sin and trust in him, he forgives us and he fills us with his righteousness. And not just with his righteousness, but with his spirit. He sends his spirit to live within us and enable us to keep the law as it was intended. Not perfectly, but from renewed hearts. Hearts raised to life with Jesus who rose from the dead victorious over sin and over death. This is the gospel that saves us. And this is the gospel that can also preserve and save our marriages. The solution when difficulties come into our marriages does not have to be divorce. The solution when difficulty comes into our marriages could be death. Jesus saves us through his death and resurrection. And in doing so, he shows us what love looks like. It looks like laying down our lives for others. It looks like not, it looks not like self-righteousness, but like self-denial for the good of others. And specifically in marriage, love is to look like the love of Jesus. Paul says that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When a husband and a wife die to themselves and seek to serve one another in a Christ-like way with Christ-like love, they are loving as Christ loved. And they're loving their neighbor as themselves. And thereby they're fulfilling the law as Jesus did. Not simply by not getting a divorce. That's not the issue. They're fulfilling the law by loving one another and by loving God. That kind of love shines. As Jesus says earlier, it shines like a city on a hill. It flavors and it preserves our world like salt. And it glorifies God, the source of all love, in the midst of a world that knows very little of unconditional love. Of a love that can weather the storms of life. A of a love that will persevere even through, through the most difficult of days. Friends, as, as Paul says in, in Romans 12, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let society tell you what marriage should look like. And don't let your hard heart weaken the originally intended depth and commitment of marriage. Rather, consider the love of God in Christ and consider the way that marriage, while imperfect in this imperfect world, can reveal the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. Thank you for this, this word to remind us of the heart of the law 
Thank you for Jesus who fulfilled the law completely, who gives us his righteousness through faith. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us that helps us to know how to be faithful in all the relationships of our lives and most especially in, in our relationship with our spouses. Lord God, I pray for the marriages of our church. I pray that as we struggle with the, the difficulties of marriage and as we rejoice in the, the joys and the goodness of marriage, that we would always be looking to you, seeking your strength, asking you to help us and that, that you would preserve our marriages, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would shine forth like a city on a hill, that we would be salt and light in this world because of the unconditional love that's shared not just amongst our church, but amongst the marriages within our church. But thank you for this gift that you've given us from the very beginning. Thank you for the clear teaching that you provided for us here in your word. We pray that you would continue to impress its truth into our hearts and let it be worked out in our daily lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.